This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives, some interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. Today, we've got Yvette Johnson on the line. Her new book is The Song and the Silence, a story about family, race, and what was revealed in a small town in the Mississippi Delta while searching for Booker Wright. Hello, Yvette. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. So um, that's quite a long subtitle, but I feel like it's only (laughs) scratching the surface of your book. Tell us about your grandfather, Booker Wright, and his hometown of Greenwood, Mississippi. Yeah, well, my grandfather, um, Booker, was a waiter full-time um, at a, a restaurant that primarily only served um, whites in Greenwood. And he also owned his own restaurant called Booker's Place, um, and that was on the black side of town. And this was back, um, you know, early, you know, 60s and 70s and um, late 50s. And uh, Greenwood is this really small town in the Mississippi Delta. And, you know, I grew up knowing that my parents were from there, but I was... I was um, I was born there, but we moved when I was two. So um, as a kid, I just grew up thinking it was, you know, this small sort of hick town, you know, that didn't really have any major department stores or grocery stores. Um, But as I, um, when I got older and began looking more closely at it myself, I realized that Greenwood really, um, during the time when my parents were, you know, middle school, high school years, and also when Booker was working those two jobs, um, you know, Greenwood, Mississippi was really a hotbed for civil rights activity. So tell us a little bit more about that. Kind of set the scene for us of of what Greenwood was like in that era. Well, you know, there were um, weekly bombings of, you know, black churches and fire. There there was a lot of violence. You know, at one point, um, Martin Luther King Jr. actually wrote a letter directly to um, President Kennedy talking solely about his concern for what was happening in Greenwood. So the town itself really was um, a town that was at least half white, and it was, I describe it kind of like Mayberry. You know, it was a town that loved um, family and lots of outings. And then around the town, there were all of these um, plantations where, you know, there was a large house with one or two um, white families, but then tons of, of African-American families. And so, you you know, if you look at the entire county, you really had so many more people of color than you had people who were white. But, of course, the economic power um, really was in that smaller group. 
And so when the civil rights movement began and really began to take shape, and even that really, um, you know, by the by the the telling of many historians who are experts in civil rights history, you know, I was, I was, you know, as a kid, I learned that the civil rights movement began when this sweet little lady, Rosa Parks, wouldn't, you know, give up her seat in the front of the bus. But really, um, about five months before that, a 14-year-old boy was murdered just 10 miles north of Greenwood in a town with 500 residents called Money, Mississippi, and that was the Emmett Till murder. So it's interesting because really it was in that community where, the nation really began to say, what is going on down there? What is wrong down there? And, um, you know, there were there were people in the white community who really wanted to hold on to the life that they'd had before and were fearful and angry about the idea of change. And so there was a lot of violence perpetrated against blacks who attempted to vote. You know, they could have their homes foreclosed. They could lose um, uh, jobs. They could, you know, horrible things could happen to them, even just for being suspected um, as being a person who supported the movement. So it's a pretty, and, and you know, the, the phrase black power, uh, that phrase was first spoken in Greenwood. So it's it's a very historic place. Um, but it's, um, you know, today it's, it is it is kind of that town that in many ways I envisioned when I was a little girl. It's, it's still surprising when I visit Greenwood to to remember and to imagine that at one point it was it was on the national radar. And so your grandfather had, I, I think, what seems maybe to be unique perspective, having worked uh, in the white neighborhood, but uh, uh, at, I think, Lusco's restaurant, but then owning his own place, Booker's Place. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about what it was, you know, the two restaurants. I mean, they must have been very different, or, or were they? You know, I would say they were... They were complete opposites, but at the same way, they were mirror images of one another. So Booker worked um, at Lesko's Restaurant in Greenwood for um, a total of 25 years. And he worked there for a good 10, 15 years before he opened his own restaurant. And Lesko's was really the nicest restaurant in town. So people who were making a ton of money, they, we, we call them the planter class. So individuals who either owned um, plantations or who just, um, were making money off of cotton picking and, you know, whatever, you know, beans and different things like that. But they had factories or they, you know, were high-level executives. So sort of, you know, individuals who were becoming very wealthy off of the cotton economy were members of the planter class. And that really was their place to go. And Lusco's was this really neat restaurant because they had um, curtained booths. So you would go into a booth and someone would, um, close a curtain or and really it wasn't it wasn't really even a booth it was more of um almost like a little office space and there, there was a table in there with multiple chairs and so you know you could go out to dinner and feel as though you really had privacy and there was a a little doorbell sort of um button in each booth so you could ring your server when you wanted them and so lesco's was a place where um people sometimes let their hair down in ways that they wouldn't any place else Hmm. And, you know, according to the Lesko's owner, Booker was the favorite waiter. And, you know, decades after he left, people who, who'd eaten there and frequented, frequented the restaurant still talked about him, in part because Lesko's didn't have any rented or um, they didn't have printed menus. 
And so uh, the, the waiters were expected to recite the menu. Well, Booker came up with this really amazing rhyming song, <laughs> and that's how he delivered the menu to his customers. And so sometimes people would come in just to hear this. They, they would want to sit in his section just to have that experience. And then he was also really amazing with the children in that town. You know, would play with them and keep them entertained while their parents, you know, had grown-up talk during dinner. So people just really enjoyed him, but I think on some level maybe saw him as um, an exception. You know, he's black, but he's, he's somehow different. And um, so when Booker opened his restaurant, he sort of, he had this, he had this, this sort of knowledge now imprinted on him about, um, it's really what the, the customer experiences that matters the most. So, um, you know, he had to, of course, open on the black side of town on a really dangerous street. And so from the outside, his restaurant really did not look very impressive. But once you got in, it was really, it was a place where, you know, middle to upper level African-Americans, you know, which obviously their economic class was much different than in the white community. But, you know, they, they could go and have a nice night out. They could dance. They could visit and chat, whereas most of the other restaurants for blacks were more of juke joints where, you know, there would be a stabbing or the police were always there. There was lots of violence, but he really kept his place, um, you know, he, he just he didn't stand for any violence. If, if people came in without money and they wanted to, you know, ask someone else to buy them a meal, he would tell that person to leave. Um, it was really important to him that the customers just were assured that they could come in and at least feel a certain way in that space, which was amazing, too, because many of these blacks, of course, are living in this, this town of violence and fear and, um, you know, humiliation. And so to be able to come to a space where you are treated like you matter, you are important, um, it, was, it was exceptional. I'm sorry, what was the size of Greenwood at this time? Just to give us a yeah, you know, the actual town of Greenwood, if I'm remembering correctly, I think was about 16,000. Mm. And then when you, but when you included um, the county, which um, most people did because, again, those, those smaller communities outside of it really had to come into Greenwood to get supplies and things like that, the number jumps to, I think, about 46,000. Mm. So really small, con- considering that there have been, you know, it's included in so many history texts about civil rights and, you know, it's... Um, there was it was it was it was a place it was it was almost as if for for the whites there, civil rights was their hill to die on, and for many you know black activists, um, Greenwood was was the same. You know it was a place where you know we've got to win this battle. So, so your book was inspired uh, by a 1966 documentary segment that highlighted your grandfather, in which he talked very frankly about the racism of the town. So uh, I'm starting to get a sense of why someone would have gone to this particular town to do a documentary um, and why he would have been selected to be interviewed. But this still really caused a lot of uproar. So tell us tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So in... Um Frank DeFolita, um in 1965 went down to Greenwood, and it's, it's sort of funny because he was working for NBC, and they had this kind of documentary department, so they, twice a year he had to make something that was similar to a Dateline episode, you know, sort of a one-hour, um, you know, in-depth look at one topic. And he really wanted to go to Greenwood, but people were so afraid that he had difficulty even, even pulling together a crew, and he was required to pull together a crew of people from, you know, the NBC News Department, but in the end he was able to. Um, but he, it's interesting because Frank's goal with that film, um, Mississippi, A Self-Portrait, was to convey to people what the white argument was 
for segregation because he identified that what we were doing really was vilifying white Southerners. But, you know, it's it, and I think in this way, I mean, I think he's, he's, he was right. And I think it even applies to our politics today. It can be very easy to look at someone and look at some of the choices they're making and decide that that person must not have a soul. They're a monster. But if you can actually discuss their reasons with them, you might actually be able to win them over, you know, without humiliating them. And so Frank's goal, you know, was to go down there and just give them a chance, you know, different community members to give them the opportunity to say why they were pro-segregation. And so, uh, but his, one of his producing partners said, hey, you've got to come to Lesko's and hear this waiter sing. And, you know, Frank said, no, I'm, that's, I'm not here to interview blacks, and that story's been done. Because this, again, is the mid-60s. And so really since the mid-50s, there had been news reports about issues in the South. So, you know, he didn't want to tell the black story. He wanted to tell a different story. Um, but he ended up going to see Booker, and Booker sang the menu. And Frank said, you know, oh, that's great. I'd love to put that in my documentary. And so they weren't allowed to film at Lesko's, but the next night they went to Booker's place, and Booker shut down, and, and they filmed there. Um, and as soon as Booker was finished singing the menu on camera, he stopped. And, and really, when, when he would sing the menu, he would put on um, a persona that was very similar to, like, the, the dim-witted, happy-go-lucky slave. Mm. Um, and so a very high-pitched voice and, you know, just this huge beaming smile. And then when he was finished singing the menu, his voice changed. And he looked into the camera and he said, that's how I talk because that's how my customers want me to talk. And um, wow. he went on really in just, you know, just two minutes time to um, imitate the way that he was treated by many of the customers at Lesko's and then just to describe how it felt to him um, to, to do the very best you can in your life, to bring the best of yourself to everything you do and to have it not be enough because you're the wrong color. So, so tell us, how, how did he portray his customers and how they treated him? You know, it was really interesting. So... I would say there were two really memorable things that he did. So he um, described customers who would scream at him, and he would respond smiling, and, and his voice would get even higher and higher and higher pitch, you know, just submitting himself, trying to, to um, pacify these angry customers. And, you know, they, they would say, and, and they weren't angry about the service. Like it was, you know, don't look at me and word. Don't look at me for a tip. Don't look at me. Mm. Um, why, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you smiling? And then he described other white customers who, in an, in an attempt to come to Booker's defense, would say, oh, you should be nice to Booker because he's a good N-word. To which Booker would responded, yes, yes, I'm your N-word. You know, so it's like, well, which one is more humiliating? Wow. Um, so, wow. So, um, you saw this documentary segment, and uh, and it sounds like it kind of opened up a world that you hadn't known about. Give us a little bit of your your personal experience and perspective, and what led to the writing of this book. Yeah. Oh, well, so I learned about um, Booker's appearance um, four years before I actually saw it. So I, it was really just sort of like a legend. Um, the way that people would talk about it, uh, but the way that I always heard it was that he was angry, and I thought it was more of a man-on-the-street piece, you know, so that he was walking down the street and a reporter stuck a mic in his face and mm. he just said something provocative and kept going without really thinking about the consequences. 
so when I finally saw it, I remember, you know, first being, first realizing that, oh, they've got lights set up, this is a composed thing. He did have time to think about what he was going to say, um, but I was also struck by how heartbreaking it was. And I think that, that the legend, that the sense people had for many years when they would recall it was that, was that he was angry because they felt angry when they saw it. But he's really not angry. He's um, very um, just vulnerable. And it broke my heart. And I, I just, I wanted to understand. He died the year before I was born. So I never, you know, I didn't get to ask him about this. And I learned about it, um, not from family, because no one in my family knew about it. So I just became really curious to understand, well, what is he talking about? You know, what, what is this world that he's describing? I, I want more details. I want to be able to envision this world. Um, and, you know, and a lot of that was because I had two, you know, lovely, beautiful African-American sons of my own, and I, I just felt as though I wanted a stronger grasp on not just my own family story, but just the idea of what they might experience when they go out into the world as African-American men in America. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Yvette Johnson, author of The Song and the Silence. So um, you went to Greenwood and uh, actually ended up talking with some people who knew Booker Wright. What was that like what, and what happened? Yeah, it, it was amazing. I actually went down with a film crew. We made a, a documentary film in the summer of 2011. And it's interesting in Greenwood, if you stop anyone on the street who's of a certain age, everyone knew Booker or knew of him, you know, if they lived there long enough. But um, it, it's funny because I really did want to write a book even back then. And I, you know, after many months, I felt sort of paralyzed because I, I kept thinking I must just not be very good at this type of research because I really couldn't, I, I couldn't get a sense of him from speaking to, you know, countless people about him. Um, on camera, you know, one-on-one, you know, with me, with my recorder, you know, all sort of these different ways of, um, of trying to connect with people. And, and it just seemed like everyone experienced him from afar. And, um, it, you know, after staring at my computer and my laptop, you know, here back home in Phoenix for really for months and months at a time trying to figure out how to, how to create this man on paper, it just dawned on me that the story is why is he so difficult to nail down from family members, from his children, from his wife, from his best friends, people who worked every day side by side with him? You know, they just, their descriptions of him were the way that one would describe an acquaintance that sort of came and went from your life. So I began to look more deeply at what living in that type of environment does to your soul, to your ability to hope to your ability to connect. But I also, um, it was interesting, our production crew was able to set up uh, some interviews with people who, you know, could easily be described as individuals who were on the wrong side of history, whites who were very proud segregationists, 
during um, the civil rights movement. And, you know, I went down there with every intention of just sort of setting these people on fire. And it was, it was, <laughs> you know, it was planned that the, that the production team arranged everything so that I had no conversations, no contact with some of these individuals until we were standing face to face. And um, they were not the way I expected them to be. Some of, the, I mean, some of them still clearly had um, dated views on race, but they also were clearly, clearly wounded by the choices that they'd made so long ago. And so then, you know, I, I began looking more closely, not just at what that experience did to to African-Americans who lived through it and to their family members who heard stories of it, but also what it did to white Americans who, um, you know, it, who were, you know, quote unquote, on the wrong side of history during such a pivotal time. And really, I mean, in Greenwood at that time, you know, I think it was William Winter who said 95 or 96 percent of anyone he knew in, in Mississippi was a segregationist. Mm. So that was that was the way it was. One of the people you talked to was the leader of Greenwood's White uh, Citizens Council. Um, What was that like? Yeah, that was Noel Davis. Yeah, he he actually is in Frank's original film, and in that 66 film, he's describing the charity that whites give to these to black individuals, you know, the everyday run-of-the-mill black individual who clearly can't take care of themselves. And um, I found it to be highly offensive and just this excellent example of how racism can deny people their humanity. You know, he just had this idea, it, just, it was clear that he just didn't think they were capable of, um, or at least it was clear to me, you know, in watching that 66 piece that that Davis seemed to just think that blacks in general needed to be cared for and look how kind we are that we care for them. Um, so I, I really wanted to, in my mind, the phrase I kept saying was I wanted to deconstruct a racist. You know, I came up with all these questions and, you know, all these ways that I wanted to, to approach my conversation with him. And, um, you know, I don't want to deny anyone that, you know, the, the, the pleasure and the, the highs of reading the book, so I won't get too specific, <laughs> but um, um, I'll just say that uh, that meeting, the time I spent with him that afternoon completely changed my life, and it informed the work that I do. It, it changed everything. So, Wow. So um, what did you learn about your own family history? Well, you know, I'll say, I mean, I grew up in a house, you know, I love, love, love my parents, and, and they desperately loved me as well. But, you know, it's, when, you're, when you're little, you think everything's normal. <laughs> so as I got older, I began to realize that, um, that my parents, had um, their own wounds that I would say um, were still, they they were untended during my childhood. So I think that they, you know, without realizing it, may have at times parented in a wounded way. And, you know, and and I think, you know, I've gone around the country giving talks, and so I don't feel too silly saying this because I know that lots of other people have done this. And you, 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 you learn in school that in a certain country or in a certain part of our country, there were these events or these battles or these horrible things happening during these years. And then conversely, you also know that your parents or your aunts or uncles were living in that time, in that place, but so often it never occurs to us to put it together. And I know now as a mother myself that when you're raising your children, there never seems to be a right time to tell them 
about racism and hate or about your own trauma, whether it's living in Japanese internment camps or, you know, being jailed because of your sexuality. You know, it just there's never a right time to share those stories with your kids. Um, so for me, I think the most amazing thing was was learning how I mean, I just so many times I've imagined myself just trying to be African-American living in a town like Greenwood in the early 1960s. And I just think I would be so, so, so afraid. And that's where my parents grew up, mm-hmm. a place where you can, I mean, Emmett Till was murdered and the two guys, everyone knew they did it. And six months later, they um, confessed to a magazine that they'd done it and they knew they were, they were fine because of double jeopardy to do that. But he was 14 years old and they brutalized him all through the night and no one paid a price. And that's the, you know, to raise children in a world like that. To know that that if someone just decides they don't like you, they can do anything they want to your life and to your world, and there is no recourse. Um, And I I think that my parents and I think, you know, hundreds of thousands of other um, people of color who lived in similar situations, I think that they were wounded and scarred in ways that we are just beginning to, um, to explore. Um, as you said, you grew up in San Diego. What was it like going to Greenwood and, and sort of putting yourself physically in that place and trying to imagine what it was like emotionally and psychologically to be there in the 60s? I mean, was, was it just sort of massive culture shock? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, first off, it's really humid. I know it's not the only place in you know, our country that's <laughs> like that, but you know, just the humidity and the mosquitoes. And, and I, I'd been there before. I'd been there... Um, the year before for a family reunion when I wasn't doing research. Um, but, I, you know, I'll say that when I, was, when I went back to do research to make the film, I went to neighborhoods that I, I hadn't ever been to, um, saw levels of poverty that I hadn't seen before. Um, and, again, this is a very small town, so, you, you know, and, and the nicer, more affluent part of Greenwood is vast, and it is gorgeous. And, you know, to be able to get in your car and drive for, you know, eight minutes and then find neighborhoods where everything's boarded up, people are living in houses that look like they should be condemned. Um, And there's a sense, you know, and and many of the people who I've taken with me to Greenwood, um, there's there's just something in the air. And you you just feel this sense, or at least people like me, maybe people from large cities or people, you know, who are unaccustomed to having to face the reality of racial strife every day. Um, you know, you, you, there's just, I just, you feel, I at least felt a sense of worry and not really a sense of hopelessness, but just a sense of what happened here. And, and it feels very slow. Like it, like it's trying to, like the town itself is trying to move through molasses. But at the same, you know, in, in the same moment, I would have to say that some of the kindest, most giving people I've met are people from Greenwood. And these are people with history written on their souls it's um it's a, it's a, it's an amazing place it's um i don't know it's it's an amazing place well how, how do you feel that race relations uh has changed in the south or at least in greenwood since uh booker's day and and how have things stayed the same you know i mean that's it, it's tricky because in greenwood greenwood isn't isn't really the kind of place that people move to mm-hmm um, it's the kind of place people move away from. So a lot of the people who live there have lived there for a long time, you know, for generations and generations. And so um, 
you know, I mean, the town is legally integrated. You know, you still, you know, see like you do in many towns in our country, you know, people um, of color living in, in, you know, sort of one or two different areas and people who are white living in their areas. Um, you definitely see a huge divide in economic um, success. You know, there was uh, there's this amazing photographer, Matt Ike, E-I-C-H, I think is how you say his last name, but he did this amazing um, photo journalism piece, I think, for NBC News. But it's um, he went to Greenwood, and he just took pictures of whites, and he took pictures of blacks. You know, and again, like some of these houses, you, you really do. I mean, like, so there's no furniture inside. There's hardly any food. And, I mean, it's just – and I can remember thinking to myself that um, when I was there, at least, that um, – Having lived in San Diego, I could I could say that homeless people in San Diego probably eat more and have more access to services mm-hmm. than people who live in houses. Blacks, some of the blacks living in houses in in Greenwood, you know. And there is a black middle class there, but you know, one of the professors at the university, um, the university in the next town, she said to me, you know, we try and tell our graduates to to graduate and then to go. You know, don't come back because there's just there's not a lot of opportunity there. And sometimes I wonder what will happen to that town when the people who love it so much leave. Um, there has been some investment in the town. There's actually one of the most gorgeous hotels I've ever stayed in. It's called the Alluvian. It is in Greenwood. Someone came in, I, I don't even, maybe six, seven years ago, and um, tried to take a few of the streets and you know, keep that old charm, but bring them more up to date. And so there are some, you know, great restaurants there and some great experiences. But it's, you know, I mean, you really have to ask people to, to drive pretty far, you know, into the Delta to experience it. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens as the years go by and, and the people who were born in that community, you know, when they leave to see what happens. So you mentioned um, filming this documentary and how, how did the book and the documentary end up differing? Oh, my gosh. Well, they're really different. So the doc, um, I made that with Raymond DeFolita. Um, it's called Booker's Place, a Mississippi story. And Raymond is the son of the man who originally filmed Booker. And so the doc is really about what happened that summer um, and what we learned. So we just, you know, he was really interested in exploring his, who his father was during that time, that he would make this choice that no one else in, in his career was making. Um, to really to, to put your life in danger to tell the white story, <laughs> mm. um, and uh, and then we were we were really trying to sort of learn as much as we could about Booker. And I should say at the time there were a lot of questions about the way that Booker was murdered. So the documentary that we made um, is really about the '66 film, the events surrounding the making of that film, and then questions about Booker's murder. Um, my book is definitely more about, you know, sort of the African-American family in our nation sort of told through the lens of my family. So um, none of my, you know, issues in my family, none of that is, is in the film. Um, and the film really sort of just documents the, the times and places in Booker's life. Like, you know, oh, and then he was doing this, and oh, and then he was doing that. Um, you know, but in my book, I look much more deeply at... Um, at what it may have felt like to live there. Um, so, and it's, it's uh, I always say it's part memoir, but it's also narrative nonfiction. You know, it's sort of like a history book because there, there's a lot of content in there um, recreating um, historical scenes. So, And what's next for you? 
Well, you know, it's funny. I, there, you know, writing nonfiction can be tricky in times because you could, you know that um, where you're at that moment needs something else. You know, but you, you can't make it up. You got to stick to what you got. So, um, which is which is part of the reason this book ended up being so much about, um, you know, what it feels like to be black in America growing up after, you know, in the shadow of the civil rights movement and my own parents' experience. But there were many times that just to sort of comfort myself, I would begin working on fiction pieces, and it ended up then being the same piece. And so I'm I'm writing a second book, which I'm really excited about. And and then and I also, you know, I do I do workshops. I you know I've taken some of the lessons of the civil rights movement and things I've learned from my grandfather about showing your humanity and seeing other people's humanity. So I've done successfully done unconscious bias workshops with police officers, which is um, intense anyway, but it's extra intense given the environment that we're living in. And, and, you know, those workshops are phenomenal. You know, it's, um, I'm real about my bias and we talk about what they're, what they're faced with the challenges they're facing. And so, um, you know, they normally start off scary because, you know, it's, I think there might be some assumptions about how I'm going to present the material, but by the end of it, um, the officers usually feel um, affirmed and respected, but they're also very aware of their biases and the biases in some of their systems of policing. So, We've been talking with Yvette Johnson, and you can find her book, The Song and the Silence, in stores right now. Yvette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rose, and thank you, Mark. My name is Lauren Hilgers. I'm the author of Patriot Number One, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Richard Rothstein on the line. His new book is The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Hello, Richard. So glad you could join us. Hello. Thank you. So in your book, you talk about uh, the systematic racial segregation we find in metropolitan areas today. Could you tell us a little bit about the the beginnings of that segregation, a little background? Sure. We typically think of segregation in metropolitan areas today as something that we call de facto segregation, something that happened because of private prejudice or because of people's choices to live with others of the same race or because real estate agents may have steered them to different places uh, or because maybe income differences that prevented African-Americans from living in middle-class neighborhoods. And because we believe in this myth of de facto segregation, uh, it's very difficult to figure out how to desegregate our neighborhoods because if it all happened by millions of individual choices, it's very difficult to think of how we might undo that situation. But in fact, uh, as I describe in the book, the residential patterns in every metropolitan area of this country were created by explicit federal, state, and local policy designed to separate the races and to create the segregated landscape that we're familiar with. Uh, And if it is that the case, and I demonstrate that it is in the book, then we have, in effect, a de jure system of residential segregation, a government-sponsored system of residential segregation that demands a constitutional remedy because it was created unconstitutionally. So the main policies began in the New Deal. Uh, Most of us think, for example, of public housing as a place where low-income particularly African-Americans, maybe Hispanics live uh, unemployed, single families, uh, single parent families. Uh, That's not how public housing began. Public housing began in the New Deal. In 1933, the Public Works Administration 
was a, a, uh, began a, the, one of the first New Deal administration, New Deal agencies, uh, and it began to build civilian public housing for the first time in the nation's history. And it built it on a segregated basis uh, across the country, in the North, Midwest, uh, West, uh, and the South. But this was not a Southern uh, phenomenon. This was a federal government segregating the North. And it frequently built public housing in places which had never known segregation before, and it built segregated public housing in these places, creating patterns that endured. So, for example, uh, you may uh, be familiar with uh, Langston Hughes' uh, autobiography. Uh, and in his autobiography, he, The Big C, he describes how he grew up in a Cleveland neighborhood that was integrated. Many cities in the North and the South at that time were uh, had integrated neighborhoods because workers had to live close enough to the factories where they worked to be able to walk to work. They didn't have private automobiles, good transportation systems. So many neighborhoods were integrated. Uh, Langston Hughes grew up in a Cleveland neighborhood where he went to high school. He, his best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. Uh, this was typical of cities across the country. The Public Works Administration demolished that neighborhood and instead built segregated public housing, a separate project for whites, separate project for blacks, not projects that whites happen to apply to and a separate project that blacks happen to apply to. These were designated racially, and it created segregation in Cleveland that hadn't been known before. Uh, in some cities, there was already a substantial African-American population that was uh, informally segregated, and these policies reinforced that segregation by building public housing for African-Americans in already uh, in neighborhoods that already had concentrations of African-Americans and building um, projects for whites far outside those neighborhoods to reinforce the segregation of the communities. Then in World War II, uh, workers from across the country uh, flocked to centers of defense production to take jobs. And in many cases, they came to centers of defense production where there were no African-Americans before. Both white and black workers flocked to these centers. The federal government created segregation in many of these communities where there were no African-Americans living before the war by building separate projects uh, for black workers and for white workers. Uh, creating segregated patterns in those cities. Uh, this continued, as I say, across the country. And the, the housing there was, was uh, in that period, was primarily for middle-class families, mostly for whites. Uh, not the African-Americans building public housing for them was a secondary consideration, and not much was built to them. Some was, but it was all segregated. Uh, in 1949, there was still an enormous civilian housing shortage. And... Um, uh, President Truman uh, proposed a massive expansion of the public housing program to take care of all the returning veterans who were forming families and had no place to live. He uh, proposed the National Housing Act, and conservatives in Congress uh, decided that they could defeat the National Housing Act, not because of racial reasons. Remember, it was mostly for whites at that time. They were opposed to uh, public involvement in the private housing market at all. They thought it was socialistic. So they wanted to defeat the public housing program, and they came up with a technique of, of proposing what we call a poison pill amendment to the National Housing Act. Conservatives proposed that uh, all public housing from now on had to be integrated. And uh, uh, obviously the fact that they proposed this amendment uh, suggests that everybody knew that it was segregated at the time. Uh, liberals in Congress uh, were faced with the choice of 
accepting the integration amendment, and if they accepted it, then Southern Democrats would have abandoned the public housing program and there would have been no public housing at all, or fighting against the integration amendment, and liberals in Congress led the campaign to defeat the integration amendment that was proposed in Congress by conservatives. Uh, the campaign to uh, defeat the, the integration amendment was led by Hubert Humphrey, uh, the civil rights senator, and uh, another liberal senator, Paul Douglas. And the civil, the integration amendment was defeated. The public housing act was national housing act was been passed, uh, uh, and an enormous amount of additional public housing was built. Much of it, the high-rise towers that became familiar, we became familiar with. After a short period of time. Um, in the 1950s, civilian housing construction in the private sector began to uh, expand, and um, uh, they've developed large numbers of vacancies in all of the white projects and large waiting lists in the black projects. Uh, for example, one of the probably the best well-known or one of the best known um, of the projects built in, under the 1949 Housing Act was the Pruitt Igo Towers in St. Louis. The Pruitt Towers were for African Americans. The Igo Towers were for whites, explicitly designated in that way. Um, in the mid-1950s, though, the Igo Towers had vacancies and the Pruitt Towers had uh, long waiting lists. And this was true all across the country. Eventually, um, uh, it became so conspicuous that all public housing was open to African Americans. They filled the projects. Whites continued to leave. and. Then industry left the central cities, and the people living in public housing became poorer and poorer with less and less employment, and they became the vertical slums that we associate with public housing today, but that's not how it started. Well, why uh, was there large vacancies? Were there large vacancies in um, the uh, white projects and long waiting lists in the black projects? Well, that was the result of another major federal housing program. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration was uh, uh, established in 1934. Many people are familiar with the fact that the Federal Housing Administration uh, redlined communities and didn't extend mortgages to African Americans in African American neighborhoods. Uh, but um, that's a minor part of what the Federal Housing Administration did to segregate the country. The main effort of the Federal Housing Administration was to subsidize mass production builders of suburbs across the country, single-family homes, um, uh, on a segregated basis. So the Federal Housing Administration required that subdivisions that were created in the 1940s and 50s uh, and into the 60s uh, be, be uh, for whites only and that no homes be sold to African Americans. Perhaps the best-known example of that is Levittown, um, uh, just east of New York City in Nassau County. Uh, Levittown, uh, 17,000 homes. William Levitt and his family could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 single-family homes, uh, for which they had yet no buyers. Um, uh, the only way they could get the capital to construct that development was with a federal guarantee of bank loans, and the federal government required that Levitt sell no homes to African Americans, and further required that Levitt put in every deed in a Levittown home a clause prohibiting resale to African Americans. And this was done across the country to suburbanize the country. So whites left the public housing projects. Remember, these were for middle-class whites who had lost their homes in the Depression or was or there was no housing shortage. They weren't for poor people. Uh, they left the public housing projects like uh, the Igo Towers, subsidized by the federal government to move to single-family home suburbs. In many cases, 
these white families could pay less in, with their monthly mortgage payments in single-family homes in the suburbs uh, with an FHA or VA-insured mortgage and uh, no down payment if they were veterans. They paid less uh, for their single-family homes on a monthly basis than they paid in rent for um, uh, public housing. So these two programs work together uh, to segregate metropolitan areas, like I say, which had never known segregation before, and to reinforce it where it existed. Uh, public housing wound up concentrating African Americans in central cities, uh, and the Federal Housing Administration suburbanized the white population in uh, encircling the central cities, and these are the patterns that still exist today. So were these two agencies, were they intentionally trying to segregate? I mean, what was the need for for the uh, public housing? What got that started? Well, the public housing was necessary because in the Depression, many, many families had lost their homes. There was no housing being built. And the Public Works Administration first began building public housing to try to both stimulate the uh, construction industry and to provide housing for homeless middle-class families in the Depression. Uh, that was the original purpose of the program, and it was done on a segregated basis. It didn't have to be done on a segregated basis. Uh, it was done on a segregated basis, and its effects uh, interacted with the Federal Housing Administration policies to create patterns that still exist today. So how did we end up with this uh, this difference between the cities that had, as you said, integrated neighborhoods where people were living pretty comfortably side by side and the government that was absolutely adamant about segregation as policy? Well, we ended up that way because the federal government had a segregationist um, policy. It, it was not, you know, much has been written about how in many cases the federal government in the deal, the, uh, the Roosevelt administration had to compromise with uh, Southern segregationist uh, senators and congressmen to enact its economic program. So, for example, the minimum wage law was adopted with um, an exclusion for the industries that African Americans typically worked in uh, at the demand of Southern senators and congressmen. But when it came to housing, that was not necessary because Southern senators and congressmen had no objection to integrated housing in the North or the West or the Midwest, so long as they were able to preserve segregation in the South. The uh, decision to segregate housing in the North was strictly a federal decision that was not based on a requirement to uh, compromise with uh, Southern segregationist congressmen and senators. There was a policy of the Roosevelt administration. So tell us a little bit about uh, other issues related to housing, uh, such as sundown towns, subprime loans, other ways that segregation was enforced in housing. All right. After the Civil War, uh, many uh, African-Americans fled the South, uh, particularly after Reconstruction ended, uh, and settled throughout the country in towns across the country. In my book, uh, I, The Color of Law, I write about Montana which had a substantial African-American population in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And uh, the, when the Jim Crow era began, not just in the South, but throughout the country, African-Americans were forced out of these integrated communities in um, places, not just Montana, but in, in, across the country, and uh, forced into cities where they lived in segregated communities, partly because of these federal policies of segregation. Uh, the Montana example I give uh, in the late 19th century, um, the policeman who patrolled the white neighborhoods of uh, Montana was an African of, of Helena was an African American. So this was not a, a, a case of uh, 
segregation that began after the Civil War. The, these towns were mostly integrated, but you refer to the term sundown towns. That uh, that refers to a policy that many towns adopted when the Jim Crow era began in the uh, early 20th century of uh, passing laws or um, enforcing with police action the uh, removal of African Americans from cities after sundown. So they couldn't remain in, in towns after sundown. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law. So you've touched on this a little bit. Um, segregation happened all over the country, but many people think of it as just a Southern thing. So how did that misperception arise? Why, why do people still believe that segregation didn't or doesn't happen outside of the South? Well, people understand that we're segregated outside the South. Uh, that's widely, uh, all you need to do is open your eyes to see that. What people's misperception is the this notion that it's a de facto segregation. The Supreme Court uh, mm. began that term, and now it's been adopted across the political spectrum. Everybody, um, virtually everybody, talks about de facto segregation as something that just happened by private choice or, or private discrimination. And if there's de facto segregation, then there's no constitutionally permitted remedy to it, uh, because it's not a constitutional violation. What people don't understand, it's not that they don't see us segregated. All you have to do is look around, look in any school, look in any neighborhood. You can see it segregated. What people don't understand and, and have forgotten is that this segregation didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen because of personal prejudice or private choices. It happened because the federal government required every metropolitan area to be segregated. And uh, its effects endure today. Um, for example, uh, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, Levittown, uh, which was built in the late 1940s as a segregated, white segregated community. Uh, Levittown homes in the late 1940s sold for about $7,000 a piece, $7,000 a piece, uh, equivalent to about $100,000 in today's currency. That's twice national median income. Uh, working class families uh, can afford to buy a home at twice national median income especially if they have an FHA mortgage and a, or a VA mortgage with no down payment. Um, African-Americans could have afforded those homes in Levittown as easily as whites could have. Um, my uncle bought a home in Levittown and uh, when he was returned from World War II as a veteran and um, uh, he raised his family there. Uh, he was a, a, a produce uh, clerk in a supermarket. Um, so he, this was not a, a, an affluent family. Many African-Americans could have afforded to buy homes in, in that community. I told a story in the book about an African-American uh, small businessman who had a trucking company that delivered uh, sheetrock to Levittown when it was being built, but he was not permitted to live there. Um, so those homes, I say, sold for about $100,000. Today, they sell for $300,000, dollars uh, The white families who were able to buy homes in Levittown uh, in the, the late 1940s, early 1950s, um, gained over the course of the next couple of generations two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in equity, in wealth. 
African-American families who had equal economic ability uh, but were prohibited from buying homes in places like Levittown. This was all over the country. I don't mean to make a special case of Levittown. Uh, those families went, rented homes in, in cities, rented apartments in cities, and gained none of that equity. Uh, today, uh, those homes, I say, sell for three or $400,000. That's seven times national median income, unaffordable to uh, working class or, or lower middle class families uh, that could have bought them in uh, the late 1940s, the early 1950s. So we passed a law in 1968, a fair housing law, which in effect says, uh, okay, African-Americans, now you can move to Levittown. But it's an empty uh, uh, invitation because it's no longer affordable. The result is that um, today African-American incomes, on average, are about uh, 60% of white incomes. But African-American wealth is about 5% of white wealth. Uh, that enormous difference between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is almost entirely attributable to a federal unconstitutional housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century. So its uh, effects endure to this day, and they've never been remedied. Uh, the, the, this vast wealth difference is a very, very important contributor to the inequality that causes so, much problem, so many problems in this society. So this is one of the things that ta Coates talks about in his work, The Case for Reparations. He talks very specifically about this created wealth gap and income gap. Um, you also talk about remedies. What kind of remedies are you advocating for, do you think, are, are necessary? Well, I really try not to talk too much about remedies, although, uh, as I've talked about this history, uh, People kept on asking me about remedies, and so I did throw in a small chapter about remedies. But I think it's premature to talk about remedies. I certainly can suggest a number of them. But um, before we talk about remedies, we have to transform Americans' understanding of how this happened. Because, as I said earlier, if it happened de facto, then there's very little remedy that's possible. If it happened de jure, then not only are remedies possible, but they're constitutionally obligatory. Because if the system was created by government, then it's under our constitution. Uh, it's required to be reformed and remedied by government. One of the things I say in the book is that let bygones be bygones is not a constitutional policy. So I can talk about remedies. There are many things we can do. We can, uh, for example, prohibit suburbs from uh, maintaining exclusionary zoning ordinances that prohibit the construction of homes that working-class families can afford, uh, single-family homes on small lot sizes or townhouses. Many white suburbs uh, have those kinds of ordinances that prohibit such construction. In many cases, the zoning ordinances were adopted with an explicit racial purpose, and so that's a reform that we can enact. But we're not going to enact that kind of reform unless we understand that the current arrangement was unconstitutionally created. So uh, well, let's talk about some of the recent changes in le- legislation and how that you, – you, you, you touched on this – affected recent re- elections or relatively recent elections, both local and presidential. Well, my book doesn't address this. Uh, as, as I said, I, um, I think that – the kinds of policies we need to remedy this are not uh, on the agenda in the short term, and it wouldn't have mattered whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump was elected. Uh, there's no broad understanding of this history that, that leads to an understanding of a remedy. But there are very minor changes that are being made that will, are worsening the problem now. Uh, for example, at the end of the Obama administration, uh, 
the administration adopted a rule uh, that um, permitted a higher subsidy. We, we have a program called the Housing Choice Voucher Program, uh, popularly known as the Section 8 program, which gives a subsidy to uh, lower-income families to rent apartments uh, at market rates. And the subsidies are calculated by uh, ensuring that they, by paying 30% of their income uh, for rent, they can rent a an apartment whose cost is the average rental cost in a metropolitan area. Well, those kinds of uh, subsidies are insufficient to rent an apartment in a middle-class community because rents are higher than the average there, and they're actually too much to rent in a lower-income community, and so landlords exploit the program and charge more than the market uh, requires for their um, uh, for their apartments. The Obama administration, as I say, adopted a rule at the end of uh, towards the end of its administration, saying that the housing authorities could adjust their subsidies, their vouchers, so that families got higher vouchers to rent homes in middle class communities and uh, lower uh, amounts for um, uh, already segregated communities. Uh, the Trump administration recently sent out a letter to uh, housing agencies across the country uh, forbidding them from um, increasing these subsidies to rent in middle-class communities on the grounds that the, the president's budget uh, was going to uh, not provide enough funds to uh, support these higher voucher amounts. So that's an example of a policy change that is going to reinforce segregation and prevent even a very, very modest dent in uh, the segregated patterns that exist in um, the nation everywhere. So, so I wanted to step back a little bit, and what was it that inspired you to write this book? Well, for many years, I wrote about education policy. I've written previous books about education policy and many articles. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was concerned about when I wrote about education policy was the extent to which uh, children's uh, economic advantages, disadvantages contributed to their lower achievements. So, for example, if a child uh, comes to school uh, with asthma and asthma rates are four times as great in, uh, for African-American children as they are for whites, that child is going to be more drowsy, up at night wheezing, frequently absent. Uh, children who have that kind of uh, condition are, um, uh, are not going to achieve at the same level as children who come to school well-rested. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these conditions of uh, lower-class life of poor people that uh, interfere with their achievement. Well, I realized as I was doing this work that it's one thing for a child to come to school drowsy um, in a classroom of uh, well-rested children. The teacher can devote some special attention to that child, and uh, the school can provide some extra resources. And although the child will still have lower achievement, it might not be as low as it otherwise would be. But when you take children like that and you concentrate them in single schools, uh, the, the opportunities to provide additional help are limited. You can't provide special attention to every child. Uh, it's no longer special attention. The entire curriculum tends to be more remedial, and it guarantees that there's going to be an achievement gap between black and white children. Well, when you concentrate children with those kinds of problems in single classrooms and uh, single schools, we call that segregation. And the reason we have so much school segregation today is because the neighborhoods in which schools are located are segregated. And um, so I began to look into how these neighborhoods came to be segregated, and I uncovered 
uh, a lot of this history, which, as I say, was once well known. There was nothing hidden about it. Uh, these projects, as I said before, in northern cities were uh, explicitly labeled for blacks and whites. The, everybody knew what the Federal Housing Administration was doing when it uh, prohibited the sale of suburban homes to African-American families or required these deeds to have restrictions that prohibited resale. So it wasn't a hidden history, but I mean, probably a forgotten history of um, how uh, our government uh, segregated America. And uh, my conclusion is that uh, there is an opportunity to remedy this, because if we understand that it was created by unconstitutional government policy, then we can also understand that we have both an opportunity and an obligation to remedy it. And what's next for you? Um, You've got this book to promote. You're also a research associate of the Economic Policy Institute, a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, It sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. What's your next point of focus? Well, I'm going to continue focusing on this for a while, um, on the the history of residential segregation. I believe that uh, we're not in a position to consider remedies for this until we... uh, have a much broader public understanding uh, until the the idea of de jure segregation is as widespread and as commonplace as the idea of de facto segregation is now. So I'm going to continue, continue writing about this uh, uh, pop policy of this history in, in articles and articles that might go into more detail in particular cities than uh, I can do in a book where I had to take samples from cities all across the country. I'm going to do my best to um, contribute to this conversation. I'm not the only one who's doing it. You mentioned before that ta Coates has been writing about it. But if more and more people uh, do write about this problem and, and start a conversation, we might get to the point where we can begin to think productively about how to fix it. We've been talking with Richard Rothstein. You can find his book, The Color of Law, in stores right now. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 